Fall is a good time, but it's nice and busy. Uh, Would you stand with me for the reading of God's word? And after last week, we thought we would give you a nice, short reading for today. The reading for today comes from John 13, 34, and 35. A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one one another. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thanks, Ash. I'm trying a new thing today, which is that I raised my podium up about a foot, which put my wife in a precarious position of being hidden behind a podium. But you did a great job, Ash. You did a wonderful job. You overcame it. So, good morning. Good morning. It's good to have everybody with us this morning. Today, this week was a really, really great week. Uh, students, first full week of classes. Are you done yet? Are you done? Are you tired of it all? Who's, here's just a question, just a little survey. Who skipped a class this week? Awesome. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> Students are back, right? Uh, they're back on campus. We went to Lang Auditorium. It's called the Auditorium, right? On Tuesday night, which was wonderful. I was the oldest person there by about 20 years. I'm 53. Uh, <laughs> And I'm sure, like many of you, uh, this week was kind of crazy for my family. Uh, Elliot, our oldest, started kindergarten this week uh, down at Lincoln on Thursday. Uh, That was an adventure. We're moving this week, which is also a little bit of an added thing. Uh, My daughter, Nora, starts pre-K next week at Southdale. Uh, It's busy. It's really, really busy. But it's also really, really good because it's one of the things that I love most about living in a college town like the one we live in, and that is that the year doesn't start on January 1st. The year kind of starts in that last week of August, and everybody is kind of resetting and retooling for this next new year, and everybody is kind of reconnecting after a summer apart, really, right? Last week in our lobby, I saw a lot of what could only be described as, and this I don't mean this pejoratively, but college girl hugs, right? As as people come back from school and reconnect. It's a very, very good thing. And, when, and with the new year comes a kind of anticipation, doesn't it? A kind of hope. There's this kind of buoyant hope that everything this year is going to be a little bit better than it was the year before, right? That this year, I'm going to get a 3.5 grain point average, right? This year, my family is going to eat four well-balanced meals around the dinner table every single week, right? These are the things we think in our minds. This year, I'm actually going to take time to enjoy the journey. I'm not going to be controlled by my schedule, but rather, I'm going to take my schedule by the horns and master it, right? Like an adult should. This is what, this is what we think going into the new year. With new beginnings comes new possibilities, right? And the hope of an improved future. We feel like with the time that's in front of us, we can actually improve our lives. And no matter how many years we've lived or how many times that reality comes crashing into us, even if you end up only eating two slightly healthy meals around your dinner table and the rest are just like McDonald's in the back of a moving vehicle, uh, (laughs) that hope of new beginnings doesn't slow us down, doesn't it? It doesn't it doesn't stop because we have this desire, this hope to see everything turn out okay, 
to see my life improve, to see uh, everything be as good as it can possibly be. And this is something unique to humans, I think, right? It's unique to the human race. No creature on earth, no creature in the animal kingdom can hope the way that humans hope, can project out into the future in the way we do. Hope is this powerful thing because it enables us, regardless of our current circumstances, where we see ourselves today, to engage in behaviors that shape and better our futures, right? A psychologist, a guy named Anthony Redding, says that hope gives us the capacity to live substantial and productive lives. Without hope, no capacity. And do you know why I think this time of year is so hopeful, so buoyant, so joyous in our community? I have, a, I have a theory as to why that is. I think it's because we're doing it all together, right? There's a sense of community. There, the, the beginning of the year is this big communal event that we're all involved in. We're all running to classes. We're all trying to get kids to school. We're all, uh, we're all communicating in that way, and it, and it binds us together, right? It makes us feel like we're a part of something larger than ourselves. My son had his first, like I said, his first day of kindergarten at Lincoln. And at the beginning of the first day of kindergarten, all the kindergartners and first graders, and I think maybe second graders, were out on the one playground where they were gathering. And there was just all kinds of parents, right? Just standing there, wondering what to do with themselves, right? And some of, the, some of us knew one another and we chatted, but others of us were just kind of there scared that they were losing their kindergartner. I actually fist bumped a, a crying father, right? Like, I know, man, I know. We're, we're in this together. Uh, there is this sense of community that comes about when we engage in these types of activities, this feeling of connection, collective joy. When we feel a part of a group, it produces hope in us. We're all moving in the same direction, and I can see a future. We can accomplish something significant together. This is what an authentic community does. An authentic community produces hope in us, doesn't it? is what it does. But if relationship, community, and connection produce hope in us, the opposite is also true as well, right? That distraction and loneliness breed feelings of anxiety and disdain or distrust. And as much as this week in our community, we, are, we feel a kind of buoyant hope because of the energy that is just associated with going back to school, the truth of the matter is, is that in our culture, particularly Western society, in the developed world, hope as a human commodity is going away to a certain extent. And it is being replaced by feelings of loneliness, stress, and anxiety. I would fare to wager that many of us in this room are familiar with these terms, right? Particularly anxiety, I think, is on the rise in the New York Times this summer, on, in June, an uh, article was published called An Anxious Nation. And in this article, it chronicled all of the ways in which our, our society is becoming more anxious and more fearful about the future. And this is the very first paragraph of this article out of the New York Times. It says, this past winter, Sarah Fader, a 37-year-old media consultant in Brooklyn who has generalized anxiety disorder, texted a friend in Oregon about an impending visit. And when a quick response failed to materialize, she posted on Twitter to her 16,000-plus followers, I don't hear from my friend for a day. My thought, they don't want to be my friend anymore, she wrote, appending the hashtag, this is what anxiety feels like. 
Our world is becoming more distracted, less communal, and it is breeding a sense of anxiety, depression, and even despair. This one theologian, a guy named Howard Snyder, 30 years ago, wrote a book called Community of the King. It's a beautiful book. And in this, in this book, he asked a pivotal question. And the question he asked is, how do you destroy community? Like, what would it take to break it apart, right? What would it take to thoroughly destroy community? And this is what he came up with. He said, fragment the family and move people uh, away from the neighborhoods where they grew up. Set people further apart by giving them big yards. Get everyone their own car. Replace meaningful communication with television. And finally, fill people's homes with stuff rather than people. Snyder did not even know about the onset of social media and friends who aren't really your friends. And he definitely did not foresee that we would be basing our entire sense of worth and self-image in many cases on how many times people who may or may not even uh, know us lightly tap on an image or click on a like button, right? He didn't even foresee this. So compile all of this together, and what you have is a recipe for anxiety-producing loneliness and a loss of hope, I think. And we wonder why things like anxiety are on the rise. And yet we know, right? We know both intrinsically and sociologically, and maybe even biblically, that humans were made to live in community. But it feels like we can't quite get ahead of the loneliness and isolation of modern American life. You would think that all, with all our know-how, all our technology, all our ability, that we could just produce something, that we could come up with some solution to this problem, that somebody would create an app that would allow me to connect with other human beings, right? Tinder's not that, all right? Just so you know. If you're like, they had one, it's called Tinder, just delete it, okay? <laughs> delete it. It but it turns out the solution to this problem can't be found in an app. It can't be discovered by doing one more brain scan to figure out how the neural pathways of one's brain are firing. I don't know. The solution to this problem of our isolation, our anxiety, our loneliness, the solution to it is actually quite ancient. A new commandment I give to you. Love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. We've been in a series in our church over the last couple weeks on the Ten Commandments. And the Ten Commandments are the kind of summing up of all 613 Old Testament laws that we find in the first half of our Bibles. The Ten Commandments are kind of this distillation. They're they're a summing up of all of what the, the 613 laws have to say to God's people. And the Ten Commandments were meant to be given to God's people as a kind of instruction to guide them, to show them how to live or what to do. But Jesus comes on the scene and he says this in John 13, a new commandment, or another way of hearing that is to say a new command I give to you. Now, when he says this, all of the people in his audience in that day would have gone in their minds straight back to Moses, straight to Charlton Heston, coming down from the mountain with Ten Commandments and two stone tablets. This is what they would have been thinking about. Jesus is like a new Moses here, giving a new commandment. And what does he say this new commandment is? Love one another. 
But don't just love one another the way you want to be loved, right, by another. That's the golden rule. Don't love somebody on your own terms. Don't love like you think you should love, even. Actually, he says, love people the way that I, Jesus, have loved you. So the command here is really quite interesting. First, it's experience the love that Jesus has for you. You have to experience it. And then go and love people in that same way that you have been loved. This for Jesus is the single most important summing up of everything that God wanted and wants to say to humanity. This is what he says. This is, this is it. Love one another just as I have loved you. Now, among the early church, those people who first decided to follow Jesus after his death and resurrection, this new commandment that Jesus gives his disciples becomes known as, uh, there's a shorthand for it, it becomes known as the law of Christ. Become, be, they, this is how they would talk about it, the law of Christ. And you will see it referred to this way in the New Testament if you read the New Testament. In his letter to the church in the ancient city of Galatia, Paul says this. He says, carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. You know, nothing makes you feel more loved and less alone, more a part of a community than someone who bears your burdens with you, right? My mother had just given birth to my youngest brother, a guy named Quinn, who's quite old now. Uh, I'm the oldest of three boys. And it was the winter time. My dad was at work, and like most moms adjusting to a new addition, she was um, totally spent, was probably a fair way of saying it. Uh, but my parents had been attending a, a local church in Des Moines at the time. And one afternoon, as my mom tells it, she was particularly wrung out. She heard a knock on the door, and she went to the door, and a few older women were standing at the door, and they took one look at my mom, and they said, honey, give us the baby. <laughs> we will watch the kids. Go and take a shower. And my mom uh, have, must have felt like a divine light had, like, descended upon her. It wasn't an alien abduction. It was a divine light. I think if I remember correctly, uh, she took a shower and then went and took a nap. <laughs> and then and while these three ladies sat with my brothers and I. And years later, uh, I heard that story from my mom because I took a position at the very same church that they had been attending in Des Moines. Uh, and one of the ladies who showed up on my mom's doorstep that day was still at that church 25 years later. And my parents visited us and my mom uh, was actually able to walk up to her and communicate to her how meaningful that gesture was, that, that willingness of these three women to bear a burden showing up un, completely unannounced. Now the question is, though, the question is, why burden-bearing? Why burden-bearing? Why does Paul say to the Galatians that if you want to fulfill the law of Christ, if you want to live into this new commandment that Jesus gave us to love one another, why do we have to go about bearing one another's burdens? Why is that the thing that we need to do? Wouldn't it be easier if Paul said something like, and thus you can fulfill the commandment of Jesus by bringing one another cookies, right? Church would be not better, right? But it would taste better most of the time. 
why, why couldn't Paul have just said, you want to fulfill the law of Christ? Just write really nice thank you cards and we're, and we're good to go. That's what love means, right? There's all kinds of things that he could have said that would have felt easier to us. But no, Paul says you have to bear one another's burdens. It sounds heavy. It sounds hard. It sounds like a lot to ask of a person, doesn't it? To bear another person's burdens. It actually asks of us that we sacrifice something of ourselves on behalf of another person, which is not something on a daily basis I want to do, nor does it feel like I have the time nor energy to do that, right? Well, the reason Paul says this and the reason that the early church believed that burden-bearing was the sign of Christ-like love is because they believed that Jesus' love Jesus' love for the world was most clearly demonstrated in his willingness to bear our burdens. One of Jesus' closest friends, the, the disciple Peter, when asked about what Jesus did, put it like this in 1 Peter chapter 2. He said, He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. The shepherd and overseer of your souls. The ultimate demonstration of Jesus' love for the world was his willingness to bear the burden that rested on the shoulders of the whole world. And through his willingness to go to the cross, to literally bear up under the sin and guilt and anxiety and pain that we all carry, through that act, the sin, death, pain of the world were miraculously healed. And a new world of possibilities was open to all of us, to everyone. So the church said, they saw this, and they said, okay, if we're going to love like Jesus loved... We can't literally carry the weight of other people's sin because we're not God. We can't do that. But we can point to the thing that Jesus did by being like him and doing what he did, by carrying other people's burdens, by going to them and sacrificing for them and stepping in under the pain and the weight of whatever they are carrying and carry it with them for a time. And by so doing, point to the ultimate burden bearer that is Jesus. And this is what the early church did for the record. This is actually what they did. This is why the church in the ancient world became known as a place where you went if you needed help. In ancient Roman culture, there was no social safety net. If you were out of money, you died. You know, today you're like, I'm out of money. Ah, it's, I don't want to, but I'm going to go get a credit card, right? Back then, if you were out of money, you died. And if you were, say, a woman and your husband died and you didn't have any extended family to care for you, you died. If you got sick, guess what? You died. <laughs> a lot of people died back in the day. It's a kind of a miracle that any of us are here, actually. And it was in, but it was in this context that the church absolutely exploded, right? Because Christians believed that the way you loved people was by bearing with them amid the greatest difficulties of their lives, right? This is what they believed, so when there was a famine or a plague or some sort 
uh, uh, thing, all the people in a, in a Roman city would, who could, who had means, would flee the city, right? They would get out of Dodge, and they would leave everybody who didn't have the resource to leave or was too sick to leave. They would leave them behind. They would let them die, and then when it was all over, they would come back. This was the pattern in Roman society. They didn't, have, they didn't have really great sewers, so sanitation wasn't always good, and so plagues would kind of sweep through things. It was only the rich who tended to live. Yet Christians did this the exact opposite way around. When there was a plague, when there was a difficulty, when there was a natural disaster of some kind, they didn't flee. They actually went towards. They went directly to the place of most need. And because they valued life but did not fear death, were able to bring healing and hope to large swaths of the known world. This is why Christians invented the thing we call a hospital, right? And because they did this, because they let their love spill out in tangible manifestations of compassion and burden-bearing, they literally, quite literally, revolutionized the world. Because they took seriously Jesus' new commandment, this law of Christ, this law of love. So if you want to talk about what the church of Jesus Christ is and what it does, the church is a community where the only law is love. The writer Dallas Willard does a better job of summing this up than I do. He says this, the aim of God in history is the creation of an all-inclusive community of loving persons with himself included in that community as its prime sustainer and most glorious inhabitant. And here's the thing. Try feeling lonely and anxious in a community like that, right? Try feeling disconnected or abandoned in an all-inclusive community of loving persons with Jesus at the center. It's nearly impossible to feel that way. And it is the antidote, the solution to the world's loneliness, estrangement, anxiety, and fear. It just is. Simply put, the church of Jesus Christ is the hope of the world. And at our church, at Grace Community, we want to be a church like that. That's our goal. Like those first Christian churches who knew what it meant to love well. A church that communicates hope by being a community of radical acceptance and love. This is what we want to do and be. And at our church, the way we try to help people experience that type of community is by inviting them to be a part of home groups. Ashley talked about that a little bit this week. Home groups are really just gatherings of 6 to 12 people uh, who get into other people's houses around the city and study the scriptures together for a bit. But more than anything, home groups are just an opportunity to be the church, to be the church. You see, we don't believe that the church is a building in the same way that we don't believe a family is a home, right? Rather, the church is people gathered together around the person of Jesus. But in order to be the church, we must gather in close proximity so that we can actually know one another, so that we actually know one another's names. And so that we can live out the way of Jesus practically in our everyday lives. Because if it's not lived out practically, it's just a bunch of ideas on a page, right? Now, for some of you, being, being a part of a community like this might sound a, like a scary proposition. It might sound to, like it's a little overly personal, like it's a little too close to home. 
I don't want people bearing my burdens, right? I'm quite comfortable shouldering this load all by myself, right? And the reason it sounds scary to us, the reason, this is true, the reason that it sounds scary to get into close proximity to other people, close enough proximity that they could love you by bearing your burden, the reason this sounds scary and a little bit unnerving to us is because this, this, the prospect of being known, of being truly known, is both our greatest desire and our greatest fear simultaneously. It's funny how that works. We want to be accepted for who we truly are, but we are utterly afraid that if people really saw me, like if they really got a clear picture of who I am, then they would shun me. They would walk away, right? And while there are no perfect people in the church or especially in this church, no offense, it is and should be a place where the only law is love, right? Because the church is the only institution in the world full of people who simply by calling themselves Jesus followers claim that they are at their core a horrendous mess. But at the same time, that contorted mess of humanity are also the only people who make this one important claim that we have felt and responded to the love of God in Christ. And that that love has transformed our hearts. And now because we know what it means to be loved perfectly, we are going to give loving well our best shot. Coffee. A new command I give to you. Love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. The very first generation of people who had faith in Jesus took these words, took them to heart, and revolutionized the world. And we want to be a church that swims upstream against a culture of loneliness and anxiety. A church that embraces the countercultural invitation of Jesus to step out of our isolation and into community. In short, we want to be a community of grace. Turn those words around. It's on the sign. And do you know where that all starts? Do you know where to start doing that? Like all truly good things, that starts with tacos. It does. It, it begins with the simplest gesture. When I was in fifth grade, my family moved to from Des Moines to Sioux City, which is where I grew up and where Ashley grew up. And I went to school for uh, one day, and then uh, like on a Friday, and then on a Sunday the next day um, was church. And so my my family was looking for a place to go to church, and we went to a church, and they kind of it was pretty large. It was larger than most churches that we'd been to, and so they kind of shuffled me back to the children's area. And uh, I remember being just standing there in the corner, like fifth grade Nick, overweight, not cool. Ashley didn't date me till like it was cool in college. Not back then, she wouldn't do it. Uh, and this other little chubby friend of mine, or it wasn't a friend of mine at the time, this other little chubby kid came up to me and he said, hi Nick, I'm Brandon. 
you're in my class, come sit with me. And that really small gesture, I'm a wreck today. That really small gesture became the linchpin in the what was my best friend and entrance into this beautiful community where we loved one another and served one another and fought and didn't like each other and yelled, but also got along at times and, and were in community, real community with all of the guts and the goodness of it. It is those small gestures, it is those little things, it is, it is the simple uh, extension of one's time and energy or focus to another that creates the space for us to begin to close the distance between ourselves so that we can get in close enough proximity that we can bear one another's burdens. It's the little gestures. And so today what we're going to do is have tacos. <laughs> to try and do that just a little bit better, just a little bit better. So I want to encourage you in a few minutes as we leave, just come eat lunch with us. Maybe sit with somebody you've not met before uh, and have a conversation. And it might very well be the door into you learning to love people the way that Jesus loved you. It might be. So as we close this morning, I just want to do one thing. If you'll bow your heads and close your eyes, I just want to pray for you. If you're in this place today and this idea of anxiety, this idea of being separate or distant, of not feeling like you're connected to other people or other things is resonating with you, I just want to pray with you this morning. So if that's you, as with every head bowed and every eye closed, if, if you're just saying, gosh, I just feel isolated and alone, I feel anxious all the time, I'm struggling with depression, any of those things, if you just raise your hand briefly so that I can see it. I'd love to pray for you this morning. All right, thank you. You can all put your hands down. Father, we love you. And we know that you are a God who longs for us to step out of our isolation and into community, that community that you set up with you and the Father. And so this morning I ask that those people in this place who feel anxious, who feel nervous, who feel who feel isolated or alone, God, that they would have this abundant sense of your goodness and your grace this morning, that they would feel and know that you love them and that you long for them to be your children and that you long for them to cozy up next to you so that you could tell them that you love them. And would they see in the person of Jesus and his willingness to suffer, to, to bear our burdens, would they see in the face of the perfect, the face of Jesus, perfect love this morning? Would they see it? Would they know it deep down in their hearts? Deep down in their hearts. We pray all of that in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. And amen. And amen. All right. All right. So we have one last thing to do today. That last thing we have to do is we're going to receive an offering for Chi Alpha. Uh, Chi Alpha is two Greek words, right? Two Greek letters. I should know this. I did study Greek for three years. Uh, uh, it's two Greek letters that, uh, that stand for Christ's ambassadors. But none of you know that. Uh, but that's what it stands for. Uh, but it's our campus ministry on the University of Iowa campus. Pastor Daniel is right, and Emily are right here. They, they lead our campus ministry. And it's a wonderful, wonderful thing. And every year during Back to School Sunday, we, all, we just want to support them. Uh, 
give them uh, an opportunity to continue to do what they're doing well and, and maybe expand their ministry a little bit. So that's what we're going to do this morning as you leave. So uh, the band's going to play and you, we, we can give uh, and then uh, I'll come up and close. All right.